of Drivel podcast. We've had a bit of a change in the format of the show. As you might expect, we do grow concerned that every week we're talking about the same things. And so unlike Mark Hughes, we're going to make a change early in the hope of achieving a result. We'll still be reacting to the weekend Stoke game as we normally would. But in the second part of this episode and in upcoming episodes, we will approach broader questions about football, Stoke and being a football fan. In this episode, I'll talk with football writers Nico Morales and Ben Wills about the future of the Premier League. You know, that thing we might not be in next season. Anyway, we're (laughs) hoping that this new style will be more interesting and we hope you stick with us for it as we've got some great guests and ideas lined up for the future. Anyway, on with the show. Chris, how you doing? I'm a bit dejected, if honest. A little bit dejected. I must say that I am... I'm glad that we're making this little bit of a change to the podcast because like, I'm getting bored of hearing us say the same things about not being good at defending and having a terrible midfield every week. So God knows how <laughs> listeners are feeling. But um, there's been better weekends to be uh, a Stoke fan, definitely. In fact, you know, I, I'm more angry about this week than I was mm. last week. Uh, same. Uh, this is the point where I'd normally do the three-word responses, but... Given that so many of them were just simply unbroadcastable, I'm, I'm not going to bother. <laughs> but Satkews now did appear, I think, six times, uh, just independently of each other. So mm. I think that tells you something about the mood of Stoke fans after yesterday. So, yesterday then, Stoke City 1, Bournemouth 2. Um, this, for me, Chris, encapsulated every problem that has plagued Stoke throughout the last two years. We couldn't defend properly. We were outmatched in every single department. Hughes showed a reluctance to change things. When things had gone wrong, seriously wrong, very early on, he waited and waited and waited until it was too late. The first half was tactical garbage. We had no creativity, no invention, no desire, it seemed to me. It looked like we didn't care, and that's pretty unforgivable. Apart from that, it summed up the absolute transfer window clusterfuck that was our summer. You know that transfer window where we thought, oh, we'll restrain spending a bit and try and get a few bargains here and there, and then we'll spend £18 million on a defender who he no longer trusts to be a defender. We'll go with the three-at-the-back system and sell Mark Munieza, the only guy who looks relatively comfortable in the three-at-the-back system, and then we'll leave two quote-unquote full-backs and just hang them out to dry. Chris, this was an absolutely disgusting display, and Hughes, I think now, has to go. Yeah... Yeah, I mean, you've put it very, very eloquently there. Um, it's I, I, I know people will always argue that, well, what can Hughes do? You know, it's the the eleven players on the pitch are the ones who who are the ones who who play. He can't stop them from making errors. Well, he can, and the fact that this has been continuous now for eighteen months or so, more even, is surely testament to the fact that we're not... He he is not getting things right. Like, mm. I, I was all for a new season of positivity, and I was all for the first few results where things seemed a little bit more positive, but it just feels like that was more disguising what we already know and fear. Last week I said that whilst the Man City game doesn't define this season, a win against Bournemouth probably wouldn't either. Funnily enough, I think the loss against Bournemouth does define where we are right now. We suffered the same loss last season to the same club, playing the same tactic against us. We didn't learn. We've not learned at all. We've not improved as a team. We've regressed. 
we 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 have regressed in we definitely have um and there is only one well no there isn't one person to blame for it there is a collection of people to blame for it at the top sits mark hughes and then you can lay some blame at the transfer team because they're the ones who've gone into the summer as they have and and i mean we we have tried to look we we definitely tried to look on a positive side and see the players we brought in as good replacements or uh, or improvement on the squad i think it's just evident that it's not quite the case at all um from your most really sorry, from from your most glass half full point of view you can look at that game and say well we should have had a penalty and so you know we we should have had a draw which you know fine yeah okay uh but that first half was the look of a team who were barely championship quality it seemed the way we set up now the first goal was kind of symptomatic of the way Bournemouth just passed through us they found it so easy they had so much time on the pitch I think that is it Moussa that number thirty one was really good? He got he got between the lines very well, mm-hmm. and that just kept happening time and time and time again. And so we go a goal down, and instantly, just to underline the complete lack of focus in the team, we'd kick off, and Darren Fletcher kicks it straight off the pitch, and then from there. Brian Shawcross hacks a guy down in the penalty area and we're 2-0 down. <laughs> it's absolutely yeah. unforgivable. It's just awful, awful football from start to finish. Yeah. yeah. Now, we can talk about individual players playing badly. And yes, there were a few individual players who played badly. But we can't keep blaming individuals. We we used to blame Mbulo. You know, we'd blame Bojan for not turning up. We'd blame... Uh, any defender you can name. We'd blame Peters. We'd blame Halgard not being a very good goalkeeper. First of all, Hughes is the guy who keeps signing these players who then he loses faith with and just abandons. And it's clearly not down to individuals. It's clearly down to a setup. At 2-0 down, we were still playing like an away side under Tony Pulis. Juve was isolated to all hell. There was absolutely no support for him. And it was like all right, we're going to sit and protect this 2-0 defeat. And then when he eventually brings Peter Crouch on, we we go long and we're huffing and puffing. Crouch is clearly not fit. And we and we go and regress to that style. Is that what we've become now? Just a pale Pulis imitation? I... Because that, that's when we're at our most threatening, is when we do that mm-hmm. like Pulis light stuff and just try and hit it up to Crouchy. That's that's our most effective tactic at the moment. What the hell has happened that in two years we go from that, that false nine system that looks so, so good and tore the best teams in the league to pieces to something Pulis had learned when he was 12 years old? It's absolutely shocking. You can, you can only assume... I mean, I don't think Mark Hughes... Is, uh, we've said before, I don't think he was the best tactician at the best of times anyway. What I think Mark Hughes was good at, supposedly, was man management. It was how to deal with those more fragile egos. And that's not happening. And you can only therefore assume that he's lost the player, the locker room. That's just how it's got to be because we are not... What that what it looked like yesterday, as you said, is a team who are um, not bothered... Or at least not up for it. And that is a frightening thing to think that they just don't care. We're not able to motivate this team. And he keeps talking about needing reactions the... all the time, doesn't he? Whenever we get spanked, which is pretty bloody often, we're like, we need a reaction now. If that if that was a reaction, then bloody hell I am frightened. What has he what what happened in the week since that seven two defeat? Because like you would hope as a fan that they are straight in on Monday and they're angry mm. at, at being thrashed like that, that they are embarrassed and they want to put things right. And then from the off on Saturday, they would be giving it everything to get a result. It was as if we carried on against Man City. It was as if we made Bournemouth 
uh, for their goals, we made them... Well, that first goal in particular, we made them look like Man City in terms of their uh, the way they cut through us. Um, we... We are just so fragile, and whereas before I thought there were worse teams in this division than us, I'm not thinking that as much anymore. And I would, and then this is getting well ahead of myself, because there's a lot of time in between. But I feel if Mark Hughes stays in this job, this team goes down. And I fear that if this team goes down, it's going to take a huge rebuilding job to come back up. Because if it stayed in its present state, we are not coming out of that championship. Right. Um, yeah. Like you said, there is a long way to go. And I don't want to... A very long way. We're only yes. nine games in. I'm getting so over the top. It'll all be fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to mention, going forward, I'm like, we all had a good laugh at Marco and Outovich on Friday night. But bloody hell, we miss him. We miss him <laughs> so bloody badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chupo Moting is not anywhere close to an Arnie replacement. I'm sorry. I I, I don't know what... I, I, this could apply to Hesse as well. I don't know what they're particularly good at. What is their strength as a player? Moting just doesn't seem to have any kind of attri- really good attribute. He just seems to just <laughs> just be fine. He's, he's a 6 out of 10 player most weeks. And Hesse sometimes aspires to be 6 out of 10. Incidentally, I thought Hesse wasn't bad. Uh, I thought he, he at least seemed to want to try something and, and didn't quite come off for him. And then you just look at our bench and think, all right, Sobby doesn't trust. Berahino doesn't trust. That's 12 million quid. And you just look at it and you think, what the hell is, have we become? And it's just so absolutely frustrating as hell and Shakiri and Butland I in particular I w- I think I worry about leaving as as early as January because Shakiri must be mm-hmm. uh, must have watched it from home or whatever and thought bloody hell you know <laughs> without me they are really really crap um and Butland had I think has been linked away for a while and it wouldn't be a big surprise if he went to a bigger club in the summer. But you see his reaction to the booing of Glenn Johnson, which we'll get on to. And you think, yeah, he must be sick of it as well. He must be sick of just being sat behind that defensive shower week on week. And it's just, it's it's remarkable <laughs> how much we've regressed in every department bar the goalkeeper. Yeah. The question I'd, I'd I'd ask is, if we got rid of Mark Hughes mm-hmm. now, and someone else came yes. in, regardless of who, will they do better with the team as it is, or is it a case of we have not acquired the right players? I think a new manager with this squad would and should be able to improve us. It purely because they won't have the same hang-ups about who they play. They won't have the same kind of mm-hmm. weird issues with certain players who Mark Hughes no longer trusts. They won't have a, the devotion to the three-at-the-back system that... Um, we, we play a three-at-the-back... I'm sorry. This is just absolutely just maddening. <laughs> if you just, just think about how insane this is. We have played this whole season pretty much with a three-at-the-back system with wing-backs. And in every single game... We haven't had a proper wing back playing. You've, you're playing a tactical system yeah. which relies so heavily on having competent wing backs, and we've had strikers and defenders and midfielders in those positions, and who often have done quite well. You know, for a striker at wing back, but to not target those positions, knowing that this is what he was going to do in the season, what what's he? What it's just. <laughs> oh. oh right. Okay. Yeah. Um So the the change was that Crouch came on for Glenn Johnson and uh Glenn Johnson was jeered off the pitch and I think there were a few boos as well. I thought this represented a l- real low for us. Um Glenn Johnson I don't think is good enough. I don't think he is Premier League standard player. 
and I don't think he should be playing. Shouldn't be playing at centre-back, shouldn't be playing at wing-back. But I would only ever find it acceptable to boo a Stoke player off the pitch if I thought they genuinely didn't try at all. And I don't think that's true of Glenn Johnson. I think he was technically poor. I think he got exposed. But he did get up up and down the pitch. He got in good areas. When he got in those areas, his final ball was lacking. But if you're booing a player off the pitch for that, I'm sorry, just what are you doing? The, the boo should not be being directed to a player who at least tried. I think it was an absolute bloody disgrace. <laughs> what about you? I mean, yeah, like, it's never the done thing to boo your own player. It's It doesn't come across as our most classiest of moments. I will definitely give it that. And there is... I do feel that Glenn Johnson... Whilst he is no longer good enough, and he definitely isn't, he is somewhat of a scapegoat yes. for a lot of people. Like if he, like almost as if he was, if he wasn't playing, we would have a completely different result. And I don't think that is fair. That being said, I do think that this is a, a complete. Um, this is completely representative of how people are feeling at the moment, and I think a lot of the fan base are extremely frustrated and angry yes and whilst maybe their booing shouldn't have been aimed at glenn johnson i i don't know i always I, you I, understand their frustration i understand their frustration and i always think that it's a funny stick to beat some fans with where some people will be like they'll be faux outraged at i can't believe how how disgusting everyone is. you're like almost treating it as if it's booing aaron ramsey mm. like and like beating fans who are quite rightly frustrated with it now yeah i agree i wouldn't have i wouldn't boo on that occasion um but i do understand the frustration um and <laughs> I don't want to see Glenn Johnson play in a Stoke shirt again. Um, not his fault. He is just not at this level anymore. Yeah, I think it was. It, I understand the frustration totally, but completely misdirected. I think in that instance, yeah. uh, booing them off at halftime, I completely understood. But um, I don't. I just can't get on board with that. Um, Question from Lloyd Redding. Uh, what about some discussion of our record signing being on the bench? Hughes has no confidence in his big money in his big money signings. Why buy them then? It's <laughs> a completely fair question, isn't it? Like what? It, it just brings you straight back to what have we done transfer wise? Why? Why are these things happening? I mean. It's it's just poor. It's just poor from t- as a team management point of view. Um, I can understand if he feels that people aren't playing well, you drop them, you know, you give them time out of the limelight. I get that, I suppose, but bloody hell, we've so many. Yeah, like it's just repetitive, isn't it? Sido's on the bench. Vimmer isn't there. Bruno's injured. Shakiri's injured. It just. It just reeks of poor, poor management across the entire playing side of the club and and the recruiting side. Um, mm. it, it, it doesn't give you much confidence. If Mark Hughes was to stay, it doesn't give you confidence that going into January, he would be able to find the players to yeah, make exactly. us better. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, the, or, the, or rather the transfer team, because I understand that it's not solely Mark's yeah. Hughes's yeah, what job. what would be the purpose of saying, right, Hughes can stay till January and we'll give him and the transfer team a big budget to spend, knowing that 50 million quid has gone on Berahino, Imbula and Vimmer? It's, what grounds has he got to to kind of justify a big transfer budget? He clearly hasn't got that. Um, the, right, so the famous question, which we covered in episode 50, has come back round once again. Mm. We'll, of course, refer listeners to the discussion we had a few months ago 
about who we would get in. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's a few names there that haven't aged well, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. No, no, definitely uh, one in, not. One in particular yeah. we definitely don't want anymore. <laughs> but um, uh, question, who is a realistic replacement for Mark Hughes? Um I just want to kind of run through some names that have appeared with you, Chris, and just want to just get your initial reactions to them. Uh, Big Sam? Um, I'm not re. I'm not really. Um, a, I want to like. I want to say no to Big Sam, only purely because I, I feel like that would be a step back for us. Um, if it, if it ended up being Big Sam, no, I, w- I wouldn't have any issue, but it's a, yeah, it's a, mm, okay, for me, that noise, mm. <laughs> okay, um, Sean Deitch, <laughs> okay, I think that noise says a lot, um, Gary Neville, I'd be, I'd be interested in Gary Neville, I don't think he'd be. In, I don't think he'd be interested. I don't think he's interested in management, but certainly would be interested. Uh, Graham Potter. I've seen this one banded around a lot. I. It's a risky one, definitely. But oh, why not? <laughs> you, I, I want to say actually at this point, anyone, <laughs> anyone except Alan Pardew. <laughs> anyone but, but Pardew. Like, I think that's a good philosophy. Yeah. Uh, Gary Rowett. Again, I mean, it's not the most inspiring thing, but I think why not, I think eh? the the telling thing for me is that we should have gone and got Marco Silva in the summer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so related to that question, then, do you think Peter Coates has already weighed up his options? Do you think there's a there's a list in Peter Coates's drawer somewhere with a list of management names on it? Do you think he's thinking that far ahead? I, I, I really, 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 really hope so. But there is um, a large part of me that thinks no, that thinks that we can steady the course with the current team in place and make things better again. And I think there's a genuine belief, almost an acceptance from people in charge at Stoke that suggests that, well, you know, in football, some teams have got to lose, some teams have got to win. We know our place. Yeah, we, that, yeah sorry, Chris, you've just kind of... that That's how it feels. You've hit the, the real bugbear of mine, is this kind of acceptance of mediocrity. Now, that doesn't mean I expect Stoke to be in the top seven. It doesn't mean I expect Stoke to play like Barcelona. It doesn't mean, oh, oh, we should go out and spend £100 million on De Bruyne and then we should win every trophy. And I'm an expectant, over-expectant millennial and the rest of it. <laughs> I don't want us to sit on our sit in our arses and just decline for months after month after month after month because that's what we're doing and we've and we've kind of taught ourselves that, that by the savages of this world that expecting better than simply declining into the relegation battle we now find ourselves in that expecting more than that is ungrateful we've been in the premier league for 10 I... seasons pretty much every other mid-table club has been in the championship more recently than we have we've got 10 years of experience i don't piecing it away yeah. I don't understand how Mark Hughes has done, in my mind anyway, much worse than Tony Pulis did in oh, his last you. few months. And Tony Pulis got the sack. I don't know how that is the case. And we are still keeping with Mark mm. Hughes. Like, as far as I'm concerned, how the team is playing under Mark Hughes, how it's performing, is far worse than... Uh, well, maybe it's just because we've seen it for far much, for much longer than we did the decline under yeah. Tony Pulis. Because and it, it's not like we have the excuse of, oh, well, the football's good to watch, because it's not. It's a poor imitation of the Tony Pulis side. Yeah, I think we'll uh, wrap up the discussion on Hughes and Bournemouth here. Uh, join us for the second half. Wizards of Drivel podcast. A place for the love of the game. What I love about football is just the the random hugs that happen after goals with strangers in the crowd. 
a place for unadulterated emotion. The talk of the Tony Pierce child and then that. I'm going to be crying in the street in a second. A place for bold predictions. I put it public that I don't think Crouch is going to score a goal again for us in the league. A place for expert insight. I'm with Stan Collymore of all people. Stan, you watch a lot of football. And if all those areas were not covered, Pulis would go absolutely ape in the dressing room at us. And a place for hashtag deploy and goy. It's a big moment in his career. It's a, a big moment in his life, probably. I can't help but feel entirely responsible <laughs> for what just happened. The Wizards of Drivel podcast. A place for Stoke City. Now this is Trump's podcast. As promised, the second halves of Wizards episodes in future will be discussions with guests about a myriad of football-related issues. The topic for this week is the future of the Premier League. Will the runaway gravy train keep picking up speed? What does the era of the astronomical transfer fee mean for fans following their teams? And is a European Super League really such a bad idea? To discuss these questions and more, I'm joined by Nico Morales and Ben Wills. Nico is a freelance football analyst and writer who appears on the Ringer.com and the Front 3 podcast and supports Manchester City. Ben Wills, another freelancer, covers Swindon Town for Total Sport Swindon and mixes following Swindon with the much less glamorous pursuit of following Chelsea. In a recent piece for sportskeeda.com, Ben writes that Man City's 7-2 win over Stoke is the latest indication of where the Premier League is heading. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, ben, uh, you wrote an article for Sportskeeda entitled Manchester City's 7-2 win over Stoke is the latest indication of where the Premier League is heading. Where is the Premier League heading? It just seems to be, to me, that there's two options. Either the Premier League teams um, win their their battle that they're trying to do with the smaller clubs of getting all the money that the, the TV can possibly offer, or they're going to say, look, we've had enough of, of playing the likes of you, really, and we'll, we're going to break away and make this, this Super League where we can just pit our wits against teams that are of our level. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I did feel um, this is after, of course, Man City took Stoke to pieces and Stoke, you know, joined the long line of teams Man City have taken to pieces this season. Has the Premier League become what we used to lock La Liga for being, which was essentially one or two really big sides sweeping the floor with everyone else? Uh, Nico, do you think that the Premier League has lost this competitive edge, which was a big selling point of the league? I don't know if it's necessarily lost its competitive edge because i think if you if you look at sort of the interviews um of the of the you know the top managers that have come to the premier league both recently and in the years past you know they all say that it is a little bit different that no matter what the english style of football and the style of football that sort of encapsulates the culture that the the people of you know the premier league and those who support the premier league demand is is different and we saw that with guardiola last season i mean he talked about how in England, the, the game's a little bit different, that that, the, that it can change in an instant. And I think there was a moment last season towards the end where City were playing West Brom and, you know, they were 3-0 three, three up or 3-1 up. And then, you know, they quickly scored on, on a corner. And then it's like, you know, the game is super tight. And that's kind of what he said in, in his press So I don't necessarily think that it's lost its competitive edge because I think from top to bottom, even, even then, like the... There are, more, at least right now, there are more teams who each and every season come into the come into the league with at least somewhat of an expectation that they'll challenge for the title. And I think that you know, in the Premier League, there's more teams that have that expectation than in any other league. Um, so yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it, it has lost its competitive edge. I just think that right now, especially with the two Manchester clubs, uh, they're just tactically and player wise so far ahead of some of the other clubs in the Premier League that it can it can produce scorelines like the ones we're seeing from Manchester City, who are probably in the best form that they've been in right now, um, since Guardiola has arrived. So, you know, it's a good moment for the club. Ben, you're a, a Chelsea fan. Um I'm interested in your take Chelsea have been a kind of recent example that kind of sums up how quote unquote unpredictable the Premier League can be from champions to 10th to champions again. Um, I mean, how do you view the strength of the Premier League in light of that? Do you see it as kind of the the pinnacle of a, a top quality league that's also unpredictable, competitive, whatever word you want to describe it? I'd, st- I'd still put it at the top in that regard, but um, 
I think we're sort of getting to the stage where we could become like sort of La Liga-esque, but um, the money is still better in England. Like um, last year, Real Madrid got 150 million euros for winning the league. Granada got 62 for finishing bottom. Uh, in England, Chelsea got 153 and Sunderland got 100. So that's a difference of 53 versus 88 there. So there's still like a 30 million pound gap in in terms of um, the Premier League and La Liga, which is what what like a, a back at right back or something in, in today's market. But mm. um, I think on the pitch, we're, we're definitely seeing an increase in the the big six um, destroying teams, as I mentioned in the article. Like, I, I don't I don't think I did think um, we're seeing this like so often like. It's not just Pep Guardiola's Man City just destroying the teams because Guardiola is so good. I mean, that is that is an impact. We've already seen the season that Chelsea have beaten Stoke 4-0. Man, United have beaten, uh, Man City have beaten Watford 6-0 as well. Uh, Palace 5-0. Man United beat them 4-0. Tottenham beat Huddersfield and Everton 3-0. So we're, we're seeing seemingly every week now that a, a big six team will absolutely destroy one of the bottom 14. So what makes a, a, a good league then for, for you, just personal taste? Is it the being unpredictable? Is it every game being competitive? Or is it uh, the, the quality of the very top teams? that, Or is it a style of football that kind of uh, piques your interest in a league? I've always come with the, the notion that the competitive nature is is it rather than like the star players per se. Like you've got La Liga, you've obviously got Messi, Ronaldo, Griezmann, etc. Um but continually we're seeing that less and less people are watching football on TV and, attend- and attendances. So um, I think quite quickly, if, if this sort of um, topic continues, then we're going to see people get quite quite bored of watching teams just um, swat teams away. Because I think if you ask many sort of non-football aficionados, do you watch La Liga? They probably say no, because it's just round Madrid beating, I don't know, Ibar 6-0 at the Bernabeu or something like that. So I think... If if this goes on for another sort of two or three years, I think um, a lot of people will start getting bored of, of the Premier League. Uh, Nico, um, ben, Ben's kind of alluding to uh, what I wanted to talk about next, which is the idea of a Premier League bubble bursting one day. We have seen figures that suggest, like at least in the UK anyway, Sky viewing figures are going down. Do you see? Do you think perhaps the UK-based fans will lose interest first? Do you think? Uh, the Premier League's kind of overseas market will lose interest. Do you see that playing out anytime soon? I mean, I think in terms of like marketable packages and in, in terms of the league, I, I can only speak to to my perspective as sort of an American that has uh, been drawn to the Premier League. Like I said before, I think the the number one thing for the Premier League is that you know you ha- you basically have six teams that can compete for the league on any given year, depending on what they've done that summer and sort of the context of the past few years. Whereas in La Liga, there's Ben mentioned it, it tends to be Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, maybe, and then one sort of bogey team that kind of puts himself out there with some incredible football and then doesn't end up winning the title or really surprises everyone, but that rarely happens. And then it's sort of the same case with the other leagues. Um, but I think one of the things that I have to note as an American is that um, in terms of popularity in the United States, something that has grown significantly in popularity in terms of the top five European leagues is the Bundesliga. And I think it's no coincidence that there are many Americans, many young Americans that will eventually uh, integrate themselves into the first 11 of the U.S. men's national team that are developing in the Bundesliga. But also as sort of a, as sort of a marketable package, the Bundesliga is doing a lot better than the Premier League in terms of making the games available for people within the states. They're changing their game time so they're more suitable for people within the United States. They're uh, they're not hiding uh, some of the lesser known games behind paywalls, which is something that I've become uh, increasingly frustrated with with the Premier League. So I think all of those things as sort of the game becomes more global is going to have a major impact as to what league, you know, because as we mentioned, the biggest thing that's driving the, the monetary, you know, funds behind a lot of these leagues is the TV money. It's how many people are watching them across the globe. And if the, I think if the Premier League doesn't take a more, I don't know, you know, hook, hook them in first with the free viewing uh, and then, uh, make them pay for it later to some extent, then they, they could lose some viewers as they are right now in the United States because other leagues are offering their games for free or there are they are offering more flexible programming, whereas the Premier League is, is requiring you know specific TV deals for people to see it. And that has a lot to do with how popular a league is 
is becoming or can become uh, in sort of the the developing soccer world. Uh, that's interesting then, because I think there was a story recently involving the Everton Brighton match, and it was suggested by a newspaper over here that it had been moved in the schedules to make it um, better suited to the Indian audience. And there was kind of this big furore about it. It was like, why why move a fixture? That's just that's causing hassle for the fans who are actually going to the game and all for a foreign market. I mean, um, Ben, do you think like the the British football fan has any kind of influence? Do you think they're even considered anymore when it comes to the Premier League making these decisions? Not only in terms of like fixture scheduling, but things like a proposed 30, 39th game or something like that. Yeah, I think that's decreasing as well. I mean, it's, you use the Everton Brighton example, and it's a good one because that's quite a long trek for the Everton fans making that trip down to down to the south coast. So if you're, I think, where is it? What half one? So that's Everton fans like doing what a six hour journey to, to Brighton for for a game that's not even moved to TV for the English audience, which is which is odd. But um, Nico also mentions that maybe the Premier League could uh, make their get rid of the get rid of the uh, Blanket ban basically on, on free free got games, which is not something I subscribe to purely because I think the football league in England is looked after a bit more than it is in maybe in in foreign countries. Like there's no B teams here yet, despite Sean Harvey's um, ideas, and, and I think I think we're we're better off protecting the, the, the football league in that sense because if you if you got rid of the the blanket three o'clock ban, you'd see even um, smaller attendances in the bottom three divisions. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm interested in the kind of idea that uh, it will be the the British fans who revolt first against uh, the excesses of the Premier League, uh, because you might think that the Premier League becoming a bit too top heavy and be, becoming predictable, becoming a bit more like La Liga, will impact the overseas audience who might go go and watch German football. They might see it as more competitive, but where. But there's like so many gripes that the UK-based fan has with kind of the Premier League that they'll stop watching it. They'll go to non-league clubs. They'll go to Championship games. And it's what do you think the tipping point will be, if, if even there is one? Because stadiums are still full despite uh, you know crazy ticket prices and all the rest of it. I think they'll just get. I think I've said it before. It'd just be a, a point where. It won't, it won't happen for a few years. I think it'll be like three, four years down the line where people just get really bored of, of watching this because, as we're saying, as um, making the Premier League more accessible like for three o'clock games, I think the the, the, the foreign audiences would, would still tune into Man City, Chelsea, Man United destroying teams because it's good football to watch. But the travelling fans, whether you're, I don't know, you're, you're a Palace fan, you're a West Brom fan, I think you're going to quickly get bored of paying, what, circa... Hundred pounds to to go and watch a team get thrashed every other week. Yeah, um, Nico, I want to ask you about uh, Leicester City. Uh, I've I've heard it suggested that their winning the title was kind of bad for the overall image of the Premier League. It might have had some kind of economic impact on them. Sorry, I don't know the full ins and outs of it. But what did you what did you make of that in terms of uh, the kind of marketability of the Premier League do you think that was good for it overall yeah I think it was it was I don't maybe I couldn't understand why someone would think that it to to it to someone that maybe hasn't watched the Premier League before or is brand new to the Premier League I wouldn't understand why it would be a uh, something that would turn somebody off because I think especially especially speaking as American I think um, we all love an underdog story um, and and you know it made it was sort of as someone that is, you know, obviously football conscious, um, it was some. It was a story. It was a. It was a sports story that consistently made some of the headline uh, sports news organizations over here. Like they were constantly talking about it. They were talking about it at Christmas before it had even happened, and they continued to talk about it sort of in the dead news cycle in the summer um, because it was such a big story and it was such a miraculous story, and and it made some people more. Uh, more prone to watch football in the United States because there was this amazing uh, fairy tale story of this Leicester team that brought people uh, over to the Premier League. And I think, you know, 
it, it was it was something that that a lot of people could resonate with because they like an underdog story. But if I could just uh, also respond to to what you guys kind of were talking about before and the unpredictability of the of the Premier League, I think to some extent, um, you know, you, you were mentioning like, you know, yeah, it isn't great always to watch. Uh, some of the top teams destroy the bottom teams and nobody really wants to see like a five or six nil every time they go watch their team, especially not traveling fans. And I can't speak to that, you know, uh, criticism because I think as a traveling fan, I would eventually stop doing that. But I think at the same time, um, we kind of have to ask ourselves like, you know, I don't think that people will go and watch a different league like the Bundesliga or Liga or Serie A. Um, because of those kind of results, because or if they truly enjoy the football, because I think there was an article in, in Howler magazine, which is a magazine, a football magazine based out of uh, Florida, actually, um, that talked about like the majority of the results that we see are, are are pretty much based on the statistics and who is more you know probable to win previous to the match, you know, the ratings. Um, the majority of the games that we see in the Premier League especially are already really predetermined. The majority of the time, the better team wins the game. I think the thing that maybe many people are looking for is an excitement within that result. Is you know, is it not just going to be a four nil? Is it going to be a three two or or a crazy you know score draw or something like that? And I think you know, if you look at the grand scheme of things, the majority of the time in football, just like in any other sport or any other facet of life, the better entity wins the majority of the time because you know if you look at arsenal for for example they are the the quintessential example of that we we whinge and we see all the complaints and the criticisms of arsenal week in and week out but every year you know they're finishing within the top four they're finishing within the top five um so i mean they they're winning the overwhelming majority of their games so i think it's sort of the excitement within the games that we expect to not necessarily be foregone conclusions which is what we're looking for but the reality of the the situation is that like i said the majority of the time the the better entity is winning and i think there's there's still some some football aspect that is to be appreciated within that i um, i might ask you to speak on behalf of all americans now which is grossly unfair i know but um do, the reason i asked that question about lester is is it not the case that when people are tuning in in the United States, in the Far East or anything, are they not tuning in for Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea? And so related to that then, um, what do you make of uh, the proposals to uh, restructure the TV money so it's no longer an equal share between the 20 clubs and those clubs I just mentioned will get a greater proportion of the revenue? Do you think that will be bad long term? Do you think that will mark any kind of a a sea change in the Premier League. Yeah, I think that would really be a negative thing. I don't see why they would change it to that structure. I could understand why those clubs at the top um would want that structure to be in, in place, but I can't understand, you know, why I, I mean, to some extent, I can understand the logistical argument why, but I don't think that's something that should happen because I think regardless of the fact, all the teams, you know, the 20 teams in the Premier League on any given season should get their fair share of the money that is split between them. Um, and, you know, like you said, people are generally tuning in for the Manchester United-Chelsea game or the Manchester City-Liverpool game, but that's part of the problem with the paywall is that, um, you know, the the structure that was here uh, a couple of years ago was that, or at least up until this year, actually, was that you could watch a game on the main channel, and then they had all these auxiliary channels for the majority of people who had like a like a decent you know cable package, and you could watch you know the less viewed games on these auxiliary channels. But now those auxiliary channels for the Premier League aren't available anymore, and they're behind a paywall. And so I think that's part of the problem is that maybe you know with the increased amount of uh, fan fan support from the United States. Maybe people don't want to watch the, the big game that weekend necessarily, and maybe they'll tune into the, the team they support more um, or the team that they resonate with more or just players that they want to see more, and those lesser games are no longer available for people unless they want to pay an exorbitant amount of money for some sort of uh, Internet subscription. So, you know, I, I think it's 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 not great what they're doing, and, and, yeah, I wouldn't want to see the money distributed any other way than it is now. Uh Ben, it's interesting here, Nico, talk about paywalls and stuff to me because in England you can see what three, four games on a on a given weekend. You can't see every game, no matter what package you're signed up to. 
unless unless you you know go on the internet and find an illegal stream. I mean, is there not an argument to say it's bizarre that every other country can access all all Premier League games on a given weekend and in England they can't? Do you think that's something that should change? Uh, no, I'm quite happy to keep it as it is. I think I think it works for the foreign audience because they're not going to be. They're not going to go to West Brom versus Southampton anyway because they, they, they can't logistically. So, um, if, whereas if you're a West Brom fan who can't be bothered to make the trip to Southampton, then you could just watch it from the comfort of your own armchair. And you're then West Brom will suffer for that, and and uh, and, their, and their club will suffer for that. So, um, I, I think we're better off trying to get as many match-going fans as humanly possible because if we if we allow all games free for all to watch, then people will stop going because there's not a lot of point to go. Another point I want to touch on is the uh, the recent summer we've just had of exorbitant transfer fees and Neymar and Man City and you know these crazy amounts of money that have been spent around and it seemed to just ramp up yet another notch this summer. Do you feel any kind of disconnect when you hear three hundred million pounds? When you hear five hundred grand a week? Do do you feel what? I think a lot of people say they're feeling about football. I don't know if this is true that it makes them more disconnected from the game. It makes them like football less. Uh, I don't find it personal. I think it's it's weird for me because I I follow Chelsea, but I'm not from West London. I don't go to games all that often. So if Chelsea is spending sort of I don't know 50 million on a on a left mid and the ticket prices go up as a result of that, it doesn't affect me directly. Whereas, I don't know, if someone like Swindon did it, then maybe I'd feel differently. But I'm sort of, I'm sort of quite um, alien to the whole, to the whole, uh, I'm sort of distant rather than to, to the Premier League's exorbitant uh, transfer spending. Yeah, Nico, what's your kind of perception of the, of the money machine? And um, what do you think uh, overseas fans have made of it? Do, you, do they see it as uh, almost kind of a soap opera-esque, uh, just a, it's a, a story of super rich clubs are just buying more and it's exciting to see, you know, who uh, Neymar's going to this summer? Or do you get the sense that a lot of fans are, are becoming kind of disconnected or annoyed by it? From a personal perspective, I think when I see some of the exorbitant fees, like the like obviously the Neymar fee uh, to Paris Saint-Germain this summer, it, it kind of, not that I'm some great person because I'm far from it, but I think on a philanthropic level, it like kind of resonates and says, you know, wow, 222 million. That could have, that could have saved like a, like a city, uh, a town, uh, you know, possibly even a small country, like a lot of trouble with whatever they're feeling and, or whatever they're going through. So it's kind of weird to think about it in that way. Um, but to, to speak to the, I guess how many Americans would, would feel about it. I, I, I don't think they, they see it as sort of, something that that affects them in a great way and i don't think they have very strong opinions about it but i think um something that i've always found fun to think about was the level of sports money that especially within the the game of football um is not even close to present here in the united states especially in the american sports model because um as i th- i'm sure everybody has read you know soccernomics is is a fantastic book and talking about you know the 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 economic side of of football clubs and how it's really not meant to be a profit profitable organization it's not meant to be something that makes a lot of money whereas the american sports model is something that while it's not meant to make a ton of money it is meant to not lose your investment which is often the case within you know the the the, the football structure and so you know you look at some of the salaries that ronaldo or messi or neymar or any really top player in a in a top european side is played in comparison to anyone within the NBA or the NFL or or any American sport, and you kind of you kind of you kind of like laugh at the at the juxtaposition, especially with the NFL, because for me I, I've never been an, a big NFL guy, and for the risk that those players are putting, you know, they found you know significant and and consistent uh, studies that say you know if you play in the NFL, you pretty much will have some sort of degenerative brain disease. Uh, or or function later on in life um, for the risk that those players are, are going at to be paid as little as they do in comparison to the football players is is pretty shocking so um, on that level it's it's sort of an interesting juxtaposition mm. um, 
I'll, I'll ask you, uh, Ben, to put both your Swindon Town supporting hat and your Chelsea supporting hat on for this next question. Would you support or be interested in or generally be in favour of a European Super League? Um, yeah, the European Super League, I simply no is the answer to that question. Um, I'd also love to know like, if anyone genuinely is interested in this. I've not seen... I've honestly not seen anyone call for it apart from like representatives of the clubs themselves. There's been, there's been no sort of public interest. We, we just hear stories from clubs having meetings regarding this sort of thing. I don't think there's any sort of public want for it. Um, and I think this is one of two things with football at the moment that um, if, if like if it went through this and sort of B teams in the lower leagues, I think I'd worry about where I stand with the sport purely because uh, it's... Um, it's, uh, what am I saying there? <laughs> um, just, just because you, you wonder where they could go with it. I think especially with the European Super League, I can see why, I can't even see why Premier League fans would, would want to see it because surely if you're a Man City fan or a Chelsea fan, you're playing Barcelona twice a season, every season. I think that, um, that novelty would wear off quite quickly. Well, to offer you a kind of rebuttal then, um, we said on our last podcast, just, you know, fresh smarting from the pasting Man City had given us on the weekend and we were kind of like it would be more interesting for us as Stoke fans if you got rid of the top six and we could have an actual you know proper competition among relative equals rather than um, you know 10 games a season against those top five clubs where you're just gonna lose 4-0 or 7-2 every time and you I'm not saying I am in favour of European Super League I'm saying might it not be better for competition among clubs if those super wealthy uh, big clubs are all together and everyone else is all together? Yeah, I think they've discussed having two tiers as well. So maybe you can get promoted and relegated into it. But then I'd say, let's say Stoke won Division 2 is what, what it would become, I guess, and then get promoted into the Super League. Then you'd be playing, what, Barcelona twice a season and get... Well, messy, cold light, etc. But you might get, you might get um, battered by Barcelona, like pretty ugly. So I don't think would that be that'd only be the same thing happening again, wouldn't it? I think I'd enjoy it for for one season. Um, yeah. But then you just get we just get relegated again, and then probably get promoted back up again, and probably just become another yo-yo effect of that, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, if if you're offering me uh, yo-yoing between playing West Brom every week and then playing Barcelona <laughs> every week, I mean, it might just be a, might just interest me slightly. Uh, but um, Nico, I'll move on to you. Uh, there's no kind of concrete uh, suggestion that the European Super League would happen. But how do you see that? Do you see that being something that would excite uh, football fans, you know, outside of the UK? Do you do you, do you see uh, people turning away from the Premier League and then tuning into the European Super League if it were to happen? I think on a very basic level, like if you were to come up to someone with that idea and be like, yeah, do you want to see the best teams in Europe play each other, you know, week in, week out or whatever the format is that that was proposed, then someone would be like, yeah, I'd I'd watch that. But I think um, should it be uh, an idea that's realistically considered? No, because like Ben mentioned, you know, it is really only the the sort of the um, uh, some of the people on the boards of the clubs who are proponents of this thing. And I think it, it, it when it, the original news, was it a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago that came out that, that the, these people were sort of having meetings and talking about it? I think it's funny that the people that have come out in, in vehement support of it and sort of the, the clubs that have come out in vehement support of it, I think it was AC Milan who said, you know, they were strong proponents of it because they believe they had, they had built the Champions League uh, into what it is by being such consistent and amazing competitors at the very beginning of it, or at least in it you know, in in the growth uh, of the Champions League. And I think that just speaks to maybe a more American sports model mindset growing into the, you know, the the soccer or football uh, pyramid in Europe where, you know, they these clubs, they don't want to lose their investment. The people that own these clubs and have put their money into these clubs, they don't want to lose their investment by, you know, getting relegated or as AC Milan have 
uh, you know, fallen from glory and not competed in Europe consistently. So they want some sense of security where they can have a league that that millions and millions of people are going to tune in week in week in and week out, and there's no chance of them losing that. Where as you know, the traditional football model or the traditional po- football pyramid is risky because you can be a big club like Newcastle or Aston Villa or something like that um, and get relegated, you know, and, and you can lose a lot of money. So I wouldn't like to see it because I like how it is now. And, and it's just it's funny to see how, you know, the, those people are they're clearly motivated by not wanting to lose their money, which you can't blame them for. But their their motivations are, are pretty transparent. Mm. Um, kind of a penultimate question then. Uh the nature of football clubs having identities is an interesting one. I mean, I do a whole other pod- podcast about football clubs and their identities, but um, there's been kind of a recent example of West Ham, I think the most interesting, where they were, you know, you can almost do an impression of in your head of a West Ham fan. Um, Careful but, Yeah, I'm, I, won't, I won't do one. Um, but... Um, they moved stadium and they moved to another part of London and they moved away from their traditions, if you like. And a lot of West Ham fans have said the club has lost its identity. And a stadium move can do that. You can also think of like Cardiff City changing the colour of their shirts, Hall City uh, being proposed to be Hall City Tigers. But do you think kind of at the top level, these clubs have lost their identities already? Do you think Arsenal are still Arsenal? Uh, for example, are, are they still the same uh, club that they were in the 70s or 80s? I think it's quite hard to pinpoint what a football identity is. Yeah, it's a so deliberately vague question. Because <laughs> you, you only ever hear about it when a team's going through a sort of a rough run of form and pundits will say, oh, this team has lost their identity. Um, and you normally only hear it with teams that are whacking it forward and the, the fans are chanting, we play out on the floor. So mm. I think every... Every fan of every club wants a football identity in, in inverted commas to be we we are we play like Barcelona and it's quite fun to watch. And the second it's not that, then they've lost their identity or whatever. Yeah, but uh, in in terms of like the the clubs themselves, it has the kind of the the, the massive amounts of money. Uh, you know, Arsenal now charge sixty quid for a match day ticket. Are they still representative of their part of London anymore? I think I think. Football in general is getting quite homogenised, where it, um, especially st- stadium atmospheres are are worsening, and there's there's a lot of reasons for that. No real concrete one. Some people say the working classes are being phased out, but it's not like the, mid- the middle classes can't sing or whatever. So, but this isn't. I don't think this is just a Premier League issue. I think there's there's issues sort of all up and down the football pyramid, especially in England. It's not quite the same in in Germany and etc. But I think. It's more of a more of a cop out to blame the stadiums, like the Emirates, the Etihad, the London Stadium, etc. Because there are plenty of there are plenty of old grounds with absolutely no atmosphere or or anything like that. Um, so to kind of to wrap up from both from both of you, then um, uh, the the theme of the of the chat we've just had is kind of the the future of the Premier League. How do you see the Premier League progressing? So I just want to get a sense from both of you, like either football playing style wise or in terms of the the fans the the stadiums the clubs whatever what where do you see the premier league going in the immediate future um well as i said in my article and sort of bits of bits of tonight i think there, there does seem to be only two options really i think the, the big six will win in the end is, is the is the uh the lesson but i think the, i think the super league could be a genuine thing purely because I, don't, I know fans aren't particularly into it but the fans aren't going to stop it I don't think if, if they if, if a club representative want to go ahead with it I think they'll get what they want um, and if they don't get that I think the 14 could just sort of bend over and just say okay well, we'll let you have your your um, whole share of the TV money just so we can keep the league as it is hopefully I'm wrong on that but um, I can only see those two options at the moment yeah I think for me um it's kind of a a broad question in, in terms of like where I, where we see the the Premier League going, but I think um, as Ben mentioned, it, it's kind of the, the the fans are unfortunately at the at the will of the the people who are willing to to command the most money, and and you know the game times ultimately will change the the time in which you know maybe there will be more Friday night games or Monday night games or whatever. So in that sense, I think it'll probably go in that direction. But I think there is actually 
a somewhat of a you know changing of the guard or or a possibility of a changing of the guard in the Premier League right now, um, considering everything that that Tottenham are doing uh, and and how Arsenal are are sort of falling by the wayside. So I think in the most you know concrete thing that has been consistent over the past twenty years, that'll probably be the biggest change uh, of the Premier League. It, sort of speaking to the to the football, I think maybe Arsenal might actually not necessarily be a, a consistent member of of the maybe the top six definitely the top six but but as far as the top four goes i think maybe tottenham will replace that and maybe solidify themselves at the at within the top four for the years coming so i think that's that's one of the major changes that'll be uh that'll be apparent well you've you've hit the right note to end a stoke podcast on the the decline of arsenal is where the premier league is heading so that's a very happy note on which to end our chat so thank you very much guys Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. All right, cheers, guys. Thank you.